For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's 4 a.m. in London, and we've just seen one of the most stunning results in British electoral history. Behind me is- the word Brexit has become so synonymous with chaos and political paralysis. It's hard to remember how we got here, why Brexiting seemed like a good idea in the first place. That the dawn is breaking on an independent United Kingdom. When the referendum first passed, the leader of the Brexit movement suggested making the day into a national holiday. He said he wanted to call it Independence Day. And the voters, at least the ones who voted leave, they were pumped. I feel elated. I feel it's the happiest day for a long time. Making our own laws, I have no idea who's governing me and making my rules in Europe. And I'm looking forward to the European club come tumbling down. Okay, so everyone is talking about Brexit as a nightmare. I feel like like it just seems like a nightmare you can't wake up from. But I'm wondering if you can start us off somewhere else. Like, What was the dream of Brexit? Well, the beautiful dream of Brexit really goes back a lot, I think, before the referendum of 2016. There was always that sense that this was a love affair that was never entirely consummated on the British side with institutional Europe. Anne McElvoy is a senior editor at The Economist. She says Brits were always a little wary of letting Europe tell them what to do. That's why she wasn't so surprised when a slim majority voted to leave the EU. So what what would this look like? Like to someone who voted mm-hmm. leave, what would this look like ideally? Well, I think I can tell you that from a couple of perspectives. I come from a part of the country, the northeast of England, which is very strongly leave. And I can guarantee you that if uh, an American reporter goes to write about Brexit and find real Brexiteers, they're quite likely to end up very close to where I grew up. And there are a number of motivations. There are certainly those who are poorer and are living in de-industrialised parts of the country or parts of the country like that a long way in British terms, from the capital, who feel that London doesn't listen to them. They're not necessarily right-wing at all. They just feel that whoever's in power, they're not very well served. And then there are the red trouser Brexiteers. Now, they tend to be quite posh, quite well off, have a very strong attachment to the idea of British sovereignty. They're often a bit older, well-to-do, probably living in rather nicer parts of the country, particularly in small towns in the countryside. And they don't like the EU for other reasons. They feel that we lost control to it. So you've got this weird coalition, as we say, between the red trouser debate and the blue collar. It sounds like what you're saying is there was no one dream of Brexit. There were multiple dreams, and it kind of depends who you ask. I think that's absolutely true. And I would say your question is spot on. There are different dreams. And the problem with the referendum was it didn't say which dream do you really want. It said any dream will do. (laughs) When the UK took that vote about whether or not to leave the European Union back in 2016, 
the question they were answering was so simple. Should the United Kingdom remain a member of the European Union or leave? Stay or go? This week, the dream that this question had a simple answer died. Legislators, the prime minister, the entire political infrastructure seemed to agree, just barely, that they don't want to get kicked out of the European Union, not without some kind of deal. To Anne, it's a start. Having said that, one has to be quite careful with that because we all have a bias towards things turning out okay, and it sometimes turns out not to be okay. And it's very hard to take no deal off the table unless you put something else on that metaphorical table. So there has to be either a Brexit or a long extension, and this is now what we're hashing out in Parliament. Today on the show, Anne's going to tell us what she thinks happens now. While it may look like British government is crawling towards consensus, she thinks this Brexit fight, it might make the political divide in the UK deeper than ever. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. The thing about Brexit is that depending who you ask, it is either a slow motion catastrophe or a dream deferred for far too long. In this waiting period, it's left Britons in a nearly constant state of unease. I asked Anne McElvoy, what is that like in your everyday life? In my regular everyday life, well, in my London regular everyday life, I hear screeching in a high sea perpetual outrage from Remainers saying, I told you so. And it is also the case that many warnings did go unheeded about how difficult it would be to disentangle Britain from the EU. So I'm surrounded by Remainers in London, sometimes called Ramoners, or Romaniacs who are just like, let this stop. We told you it would be terrible, and it is. But then when you go home... When I go home, or not even to the far northeast... In, I keep saying far, you know, in American terms, it's just around the corner. But um, <laughs> but you have to allow us to be little. Um, I go to Kent, for instance, at the weekend. This is 50 miles outside London. Pretty place on the seaside. Partly poor seaside towns, but also villages that are reasonably prosperous. And I find a completely different conversation, huh. which makes me wonder a little bit, like, why didn't people didn't see this before, that you don't have to go very far outside your own beltway, to find certainly a confusion, a frustration with the elites, frustration with parliamentarians for not delivering this Brexit that they wanted. Though, of course, it's a bit moot because we don't know quite what Brexit they really did want, depending on where you go. But I do think there is a part of a sort of, I told you so, this would turn into a disaster, and now I know it will, so I better go uh, and buy more lavatory paper. A very British reaction, it must be said, to almost any <laughs> crisis. But... There are people who are genuinely concerned, and I don't want to play that down. And that's certainly true for friends and colleagues who have, uh, for instance, a, a spouse or a partner from an EU country. It's not like anybody really thinks that they will be kicked out of the country, but it's not very nice 
not not to know, not to know what your residency rights are, not to know when you have to reapply to live somewhere that you've lived for a very long time. That isn't very pleasant. I wouldn't like it either. So I think that sense that the 29th of March Brexit day passed without those things finally being nailed down has angered and confused a, a lot of people. Yeah. And you know, I was reading reports about not just people who are sort of thinking about what do I need to buy? What do I need to have in my house? But like explosive objects left on train tracks with people saying, you know, we we want Brexit, deliver it. And it's it seems like definitely the emotion is kind of coming to a head. And I wonder if that's that's just my interpretation or whether that's actually how it feels. I'm wary of taking outlying threats and kind of one-off, slightly loopy, you know, explosive objects left on, on train tracks. I think more relevant to how people feel is just this, just feeling in a, a rolling boil, just feeling an uncertainty or just feeling sometimes that you can't quite get to sleep at night because you don't know what's happening to your country. That seems to me to matter more than slightly overcooking the odd outlying event. What Brits really don't like is we're natural warriors and we don't like, we're not used to living at this pitch of quite corrosive anxiety. And that's why the most common thing I hear since you asked me, Mary, is can't they just get it sorted? You know, as if a bunch of MPs <laughs> could just come and go, ah, I have the answer. <laughs> it's on an envelope. I've got it here. Damn, I, I lost it. I wish we'd found that in the last two years. But that is that desire, I think, for calm, which is both very much in the British psyche, but it's also a little unrealistic when you mm. look at how divided the country is and the impossible situation in which the Prime Minister, Theresa May, has found herself. Sounds exhausting. It is actually quite tiring. And I, I know this sounds like a bit of a whinging Brit. And as you probably gather, I'm a bit more robust than quite a lot of my colleagues about this thing. I'm, I'm a paid-up member of the anti-hysteria faction. But sometimes I just feel very worn out by it. But this week, British lawmakers did agree on something they agreed we don't want to just kind of fall off this cliff, right, of leaving the EU with no plan. And that is something. And it seems to me like we're seeing these little green shoots of compromise in British politics. Lay out to me who Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn are, and what they've said about each other in the past, and what they've said about Brexit in the past, and how that might be sort of impacting this week of conversations they're having. Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn are the ultimate odd couple. <laughs> Theresa May gets to be Prime Minister. She's a very tough... The Prime Minister. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. She Mr. fought Speaker. her way to the head of the Conservative Party at a time when David Cameron basically had to get out of the way because he'd lost the referendum. So she got it in a way to her own surprise, but she was always very ambitious. She is a centre-right figure, not massively imaginative, very tough, has enormous stamina. These are her strengths. Her weaknesses are she's quite inflexible. There is the old joke that you might as well talk to a bot. So there's a May bot. She doesn't vary very much from the script. Today I want to talk about how, by working together... We can seize that opportunity and deliver the change that people want. 
she became known for going around and saying Brexit is Brexit whenever she was asked Brexit about Brexit. Brexit means Brexit, right? she said enlighteningly. Uh, I understand Theresa May. I think I give her benefit of the doubt on that. I think what she meant is we won't do what like all you Remainers want to do, which is pretend it didn't happen and then just not deliver it. We will deliver something called Brexit. So I don't think Brexit means Brexit was such a stupid statement. The trouble was it didn't get delivered. So she seemed to have failed in that endeavour. She's failed in part because it is such a hard road to hoe. She has wasted time. She has been too trusting that she would in the end get her deal through by just saying again and again, Brexit means Brexit. My deal's better than no deal. She's tried to keep the right wing of her party on board. Should she have reached across the aisle earlier? All of these things, I think, are justified criticisms. But look at Jeremy Corbyn. I call the leader of the opposition, Mr Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Jeremy Corbyn comes really from nowhere in the Labour leadership race. Labour has been in power for lots of years since Tony Blair took power in 1997. When it finally goes, it's a sort of exhausted party. The left and the right of the party are no longer acting anyway like in unison. And it must be said, with a great grassroots campaign, he's a bit of the British Bernie, and about the same sort of age and outlook, he comes through grabs the Labour leadership, invents the grassroots movement, lots of young people with a lot of old school left-wing trade union support and machine politics shenanigans. And waiting for the butt. And so, gosh, you know, how did we end up with these two? Um, Jeremy Corbyn wants to bring down a Conservative government. Why wouldn't he? I mean, he's been on the left of politics for so long. He hates the Conservative Party. His best throw is that this chaos, remember, he's also got a Marxist, even a Leninist background, his best throw for power, that's what the old... Dear old Vladimir Illich teaches us is you take the chaos of capitalism and you use it for revolutionary intent. So why would he want to help make peace? Would he want to do it for political reasons? Like to get voters to come out for his party? He may well think and calculate that the best way to get into number 10... I should say, when you say get into number 10, you mean get into 10 Downing Street, become Prime Minister. Get into 10 Downing Street, yes, become Prime Minister. So he could be thinking that way... So there are two things going on at once here, which is why one's never really sure. Is he in it to support Theresa May to put some complicated customs union alternative that maybe would bring over some Labour votes? Jeremy Corbyn wants a general election. He doesn't really want the voters to go back and have another think about Brexit. He wants the voters to be in such a state of despair with the Conservative Party that they think I'll take the other guy and not look too closely, maybe, uh, at what is on offer. So you can see from his point of view, that's a gamble worth taking. So you're painting this picture of two people who are very, very different. Have they said things about each other that maybe aren't so nice in this process? Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, this two just couldn't be from more different worlds. Theresa May She's not a kind of hatey, speechy kind of person, but she has basically said Jeremy Corbyn would undermine the economic credibility of the United Kingdom because if you're a conservative, whether you're centre-right or more to the right, Jeremy Corbyn is the sum of your worst nightmares. I mean, this guy wants to nationalise everything. Jeremy Corbyn was always out there on the side of industrial trade union power. I mean, really from that old hardline kind of base. He supported 
all sorts of rather wrong foreign policy positions, including pro-Venezuela, de facto pro-Moscow. Um, you know, he's all over the place, really, in terms of his foreign policy outlook, which is, is a very grave thing. You know, if you're Britain and you're a NATO member, and yes, uh, Theresa May thinks he's a liability, and he thinks that the Tories are uncaring, dreadful, cruel people who grind the faces of the poor in the dirt. The uncaring, uncouth attitude of certain members of... To me, colder. Order. This is not just a grudge match. This is a big, big separation of the left and right in British politics. In the last couple of years, what has he said about Brexit and Theresa May? Because my impression, and I could be totally wrong about this, is that in some ways he's kind of kept it neutral on Brexit because he's leading a party that has different ideas of what it wants. The difficulty for Jeremy Corbyn is he's really a Brexiteer. He's a left-wing Brexiteer, which is, the story is so fascinating because the spectrum bends. So you go to the right and you find a lot of people interested in, in Brexit and it curves around the back and you meet the old hard left who don't like the EU. They think it's a capitalist bureaucratic club. So Jeremy Corbyn has never liked the EU. He consistently voted with Brexity kind of positions until the referendum when he was persuaded to give the most tepid support to Remain that you can possibly imagine. And I think that's really where he has remained. His party, however, is massively pro-Remain. So he has these two horses to ride. And I think you're right. That's why you get this very uncertain tone. He cannot say what he really thinks, which is, you know, he doesn't really want a second referendum. His interest, which I think is quite clever, is that whatever happens next, that Labour seem to be driving it. He's been rude about Theresa May's management of Brexit and said it's chaos. And in fairness, you know, he's had an open goal on that one, hasn't he? Because you're not really able to say this has been the most brilliantly managed bit of technocratic government that the United Kingdom has ever seen. And he goes on the news and has a very suffering saint look, Jeremy, when he goes on the news. And he looks as it, it pains him very much to discover that his rivals are incompetent. The difficulty is when the light shifts to him. So at the moment, he's now having talks with Theresa May in number 10 Downing Street picture, if you will, the, the clink of the, the, the teacups and whether he'll bring his very own Che Guevara mug with him. Well, it seems to me that the obvious thing is another referendum because there's been so much back and forth politically about this. Do you agree? I'm going to put a counter question to you rather unfairly as I'm your guest, which is what's the question? I'll answer the question when you tell me what the question on the ballot is. Brexit? No Brexit? I mean, that was the question last time, right? OK, so you have a deal on the table to leave in agreement with the European Union. If that is on the ballot paper, that's the Theresa May deal. We know it didn't pass Parliament, but it is what the EU has agreed to. But hang on a minute, that doesn't satisfy real Brexiteers because they didn't want that deal. They think it's a rubbish deal. They think it ties us too close to the EU. So then you have to have, let's say, a question for them. And then Remainers will say quite rightly, well, I didn't want the Theresa May deal because I never wanted to leave in the first place. So that now leaves us with three options. Three-part referendums are very, very difficult. You know, you get a sort of two against one sort of feeling or indeed you might find it breaks down pretty much 30-30-30 or something like that. And the other argument which really haunts the second referendum is this, like it went so well last time. Hmm. My own hunch is I think we'll reach a general election first. But it seems to me more likely that 
you have to go through that route, even if you do eventually reach a second referendum. I'm not ruling it out. I'm merely saying it's the idea that it's a simple fix is, I think, a bit of a, a dream, a bit like the Brexit dream. Well, I guess what you're saying is that's how we got into this mess. A very simple vote, sort of taking a very complicated topic and flattening it down to like a simple yes, no. And making these rules is really complicated. And so the solution is really to change the people making the rules, not for the general electorate to change the rules. That's a really interesting philosophical question at the base of all this, which I've thought about a lot more since the referendum which is when is it right to ask the people to make big, quite technical decisions? And I don't think they were all just misinformed or lied to. I don't take that narrative. I think they knew pretty much what they thought they wanted. It's just the impossibility of delivering it if the result comes out of 52 to 48. If it had come out vastly pro-Brexit or vastly pro-Remain, we wouldn't have had this issue. But we have taken a divide in the country and kind of magnified it. Anne McElvoy, thank you so much for joining me. I've enjoyed it immensely. I've thought about a lot of things when we put your questions. Thank you. Anne McElvoy is a senior editor at The Economist. She also runs Economist Radio, and she hosts the show The Economist Asks. All right, that's the show. It is Friday. Get out there. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris. My producers are Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Anna Martin. We are narrowly divided on the issue of whether to remain at Slate, an issue commonly referred to as what next it. Tell us what you think of the show by finding us on Apple Podcasts and leaving us a rating, a review. It helps other people find us. Talk to you next week. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen. Listen.